today is December 15th, 2011, and will likely go down as uh, a day that begins or marks the end of the war in Iraq. But is the war really over? Eight years later, uh, President Barack Obama is declaring the war in Iraq over. Amidst much pomp and circumstance, the president is taking credit for bringing about an end to the conflict, all the while avoiding any mention of the true costs, casualties, and neglecting any commentary on whether or not our mission was in fact accomplished. Exactly what does it mean to say that the war is over? And is Obama really responsible for ending the war, or are the politics surrounding the withdrawal of troops far more complex? What have been the human costs of the war, not just for our troops, but for the Iraqis? Has a democracy been established? Will military contractors remain behind? Finally, in what condition is the U.S. leaving the Iraq infrastructure, and what reparations might be needed? We're going to talk about all of this today with uh, Ali Issa. He is the national field organizer for the War Resisters League. He has been studying uh, all things related to the war in Iraq, in particular what is taking place in Iraq, and he joins us this morning from uh, New York. Good morning, Ali. Good morning, Jared. Thanks for having me. Thanks so much for joining us this morning. Um, you must be very, very busy over the past couple of days and probably in the foreseeable uh, week or so trying to make sense of exactly what it means to say that the war is over. So why don't we begin with uh, what is admittedly probably a very loaded question, but uh, is the war in Iraq really over? Well, um, I would say that the the war, um, broadly speaking, has just entered a, a different phase for the Iraqi people. Um, there's there's a, a, a major shift now in the presence of U.S. military troops, but the question of the legacy of that occupation and the regime that the U.S. installed is going to continue to be a, a battle for social justice, for economic sovereignty, and for Iraqi independence. So while um, the immediate military occupation is going to be significantly reduced, and the direct confrontation with um, foreign troops in Iraq is is going to be shifted now to questions of who's controlling the Iraqi economy, um, who is going to be paying the costs of, for instance, um, uh, phosphorus debris and Fallujah, and then who's going to control things like Iraqi's political institutions and its economy. So I think the, the war might be over militarily, but the battle for Iraqi justice has just yet to begin. And so it, it sounds, if, if what you're saying, if what I'm hearing is, is that, you know, when we talk about the war being over, we're talking about from a uniquely American troops perspective. That, you know, I, I hate to compare it to a party, but, you know, you go to a dinner party, when you leave, everybody else still has to clean up. And everybody else is going to be awake a lot longer while you're, you know, tucking yourself into bed. And um, we might be bringing our troops home, but that doesn't mean that everything has been wrapped up in a nice, tidy little package. C certainly not. I mean, yeah, and, and I think the, the greatest indicator of that actually has been something I've been covering um, extensively, which is the Iraqi protest movement, which um, since February 25th, uh, inspired by the revolts in, in Tunisia and, and Egypt and elsewhere um, in the Arab world, there have been ongoing protests against both um, the U.S. occupation as it was standing, as well as um, Maliki's regime, since it was um, Prime Minister Nurik and Maliki's 
policies which prevented um, the promises of what the invasion were going to create, such as a free civil society, uh, democratic elections, and um, a participatory political culture. So the, the mess that was created is also now going to be extended by um, these mostly diaspora politicians who um, were really not accountable to the Iraqi people and much more so to the U.S. occupation as well as other regional forces such as the Iranian regime. So um, those protests that have been taking place and which in the summer reached kind of civil disobedience levels with general strikes and mass shutdowns, I think really express both what the Iraqi people demand um, of their present government and also what kind of issues are left behind now by this occupation that they really need to um, create a widespread movement to, to begin to affect. Okay, so let's, um, let's dissect the war and lead up to this present and, and take a look at activism, but let's remember what we were told and, and what has transpired over the past, uh, the past years. Um, what were the, the uh, stated goals, just to remind listeners of the, uh, the war in Iraq? What were, what were we promised? And, and I don't even like to say we. What were the Iraqi people promised? Because that's really what it's about. Sure. Well, um, I would say the Iraqi people were uh, promised um, free and fair democratic elections and a representative body which would... Um, uh, liberate them from the regime of Saddam Hussein. Um, but what's really key, actually, to, to remember at that point is to go back to um, the first Gulf War of um, 1990 and 91, as well as the sanctions regime that was imposed um, by the U.S. on Iraq, because so much of the infrastructure, which was um, uh, completely decimated during that sanctions regime, is, is also what Iraqis had to face when the U.S. invasion began. So there was also promises by this new political um, elite that came in that they would deal, for instance, with um, the fact that health care had um, really bottomed out after being one of the strongest in the region, um, education, um, and any kind of uh, trade with its, its neighbors. So the the new regime that was to come in was supposed to deal with um, these widespread social problems which had been created by the sanctions. And instead, actually, the conditions had significantly worsened. Um, electricity, for instance, which is commonly discussed, is still not um, online 24 hours a day in many major Iraqi cities, which is a, a real issue when um, summer temperatures can get to 110 degrees. And, and there's just this question of security, which has to do with the fact that um, Iraqi contractors and, and private security were really there to protect the political elite as opposed to um, the massive amounts of people. So they were promised a secure, stable society from which they could determine their um, social and economic future, and that's far from what resulted after the occupation. You know, it's interesting. I was watching uh, The Daily Show uh, last week, and uh, Jon Stewart had a, a war photographer on the program and uh, he was mentioning that there's still only electricity uh, in some parts of Iraq you know four hours a day and um, it it was just an aside it 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 didn't even get you know and I I love Jon Stewart but it didn't even get any mention that 
wait a second, it's it's eight years over, we know that the troop withdrawal is beginning, and yet this is what we're leaving behind. And it was, you know, and, and of course it brings up a whole other question, which you mentioned is, you know, exactly how do we define war? I mean, we've looked at the past eight years, but what about the no-fly zones? What about the sanctions that preceded it? And if we leave a country in the same conditions as when there was open or hot conflict, what does it really mean to say that the war is, is quote-unquote, over? So exactly how are we leaving the infrastructure? Well, that's, um, it's, it, it's a big question. I mean, there's, there's a lot of um, technical issues, such as um, who gets the contracts. Um, a, a big part of also what's being left is, of course, not just U.S. business interests, but international ones. So because there was a lot of infighting within the sectarian government that the, uh, the U.S. had installed, um, who gets those contracts was a big lag on, for instance, how electricity would be. Um, kind of re-networked across the country. So in addition to kind of the corruption that, that had been established by this new regime, there was a question of which international players would get those contracts and just the fact that there was very little interest in meeting the people's immediate needs. So um, th- there's there's that infrastructure question, which is hampered by um, a corrupt political culture. But there's also, um, I think, a, an important resilience that should be emphasized where because Iraqis have had to depend on each other now for for so long that um, their informal networks have really replaced the state. And there's there's ways in which that will then maybe be reflected in a more democratic regime which Iraqis are trying to create. So um, there's there's examples, for instance, of, of hospitals having been decimated by either direct attacks or, or just neglect, and, and then being replaced by sort of people's clinics that you might have heard that are similar to like in Tahrir Square in, in Egypt. So um, there's, yeah, there's a legacy of, of very damaged infrastructure since the period of sanctions, but as well as um, sort of an alternative people's infrastructure, which relies on generosity and, and, and lending that will be very important in the future. I want to remind listeners during tune to KUCI in Irvine. This is Justice or Just Us, and we're speaking with Ali uh, Issa, t- talking about uh, the war in Iraq and taking a look at kind of, uh, for lack of a better term, its legacy or lack thereof, and uh, kind of what have we left and where do we go from here. Let's just quickly take a look at some of the politics of it and then return to uh, what people in Iraq are, are actually doing. But... Um, there seems to be so much pomp and circumstance surrounding the U.S. troop withdrawal, and it seems as if President Obama is kind of doing a victory lap of sorts. Like, this is the icing on the cake of uh, some of his other, quote-unquote, accomplishments in foreign policy, such as uh, assassinating uh, uh uh, Osama bin Laden and the uh, the Libya occupation and so forth. Um, is it fair for President Obama to take credit for ending the war? Exactly what is the status of forces agreement and how do we link the two? Well, um, the status of forces agreement or the, the SOFA was um, something put forward by, um, I think, a result of the fact that the U.S. military was basically exhausted um, in in 2008, and that the the sentiment in the U.S. had grown clearly oppositional to the war, and the fact that um, the Iraqi people were 
set against it, um, including sectors of armed resistance, but as well as just a, a wide sentiment of wanting them to leave as soon as possible. So that, that agreement set um, terms for the present withdrawal. Um, but as that was signed um, in uh, November of 2009, there was a question of how, um, you know, strictly it would be followed and, and, and Listeners probably know that there was a, a really strong attempt to keep military bases there, to keep some kind of military presence, which was erect, uh, rejected by the Iraqi parliament, even though the Prime Minister Maliki had tried to sway um, a lot of the political establishment, but they couldn't because there was just too much popular discontent, as well as, of course, regional pressure from Syria, from Iran, um, against any maintenance of U.S. bases. So I think um, it's preposterous to think that it's only a U.S. foreign policy decision that would um, choose to leave Iraq, and it was it was a combination of a lot of political pressure of the cost of the war um, in monetary terms, which have now reached almost a trillion on the U.S. side, and then just the question of really kind of what was the point of this occupation, since many of its goals were economic and had to do with Iraq's resources, have actually been usurped by Chinese oil companies. So I think there's, there's just so many factors to consider that when um, Iraqis now are partially celebrating, partially vigilant about the future, um, it's, it's, it's key to emphasize that their resistance both um, uh, to their present political elite and to kind of regional forces has been key in, in, in making this come about. It's... it's uh Obama and the uh, the Pentagon was pushing for continued troop presence just as recently as a few weeks ago. Is that not right? It is, yeah. And, I mean, the, the way that they went about it was through um, politicians that were friendly to them. So they, they were working, of course, on the question of immunity and their condition that contractors or, or U.S. service members would not be tried by um, Iraqi courts was kind of the last straw, and, and um, even the politicians that were trying to implement um, uh, the, the Pentagon's vision weren't able to, to get their politicians on that side. So the demands were just far too high, and um, it, it resulted in them really asking for too much and getting nothing. Right. We, we, we the U.S., wanted immunity for its troops who were going to be uh, remaining in Iraq, and when not getting that, that was kind of a breaking, uh, uh, a breaking point. Correct. Okay. Uh, which, which is just, to me, it's just so interesting. It just seems so disingenuous for, um, the, it, you know, it's, it's great that there is this troop withdrawal. It just seems so, well, political, <laughs> the way it's being spun. But, you know, I suppose, uh, what, what should we expect? Um, so let's talk logistics for a minute. How many troops, if any, will remain? Are all of our troops coming home? Are we going to have uh, military bases there? Is this something that has yet to be determined? And what about independent contractors that we hear so much about? Sure. Well, uh, according to um, General Buchanan, who has been a, a spokesperson for the military um, in his recent week, um, there's going to be 200 soldiers, um, official U.S. military, protecting the embassy. Um, and outside of that, every last uh, American troop will leave um, by, by the end of this month. Um, there's, there's also the question, though, of where they're being redeployed. So on the first level, say in Kuwait, um, ma many of uh, the U.S. Army are just being shipped across the border. Um, at this point, it looks like 4,500 um, are, are immediately being transferred there. 
Um, and then there's a question, like you, you mentioned, of private contractors. So th there's uh, a number being thrown around from um, the, the State Department. There's going to be 16,000 uh, personnel, which includes um, uh diplomats and, and, and business persons, but that the vast majority of that, uh, around 10,000, will be security personnel protecting those um, business people and, and diplomats. So um, the, the official U.S. troop presence has been shifted to the surrounding area to some extent, and then the private military contractors to protect various U.S. businesses, um, uh, embassies, and, and, and consulates will, will remain to some extent. Then the question of bases is um, is sort of a controversial one. It's not clear. I mean, at one point, there were um, around 85 major U.S. installations, that some of which have been dismantled, some of which have been transferred to um, the, the Iraqi security forces. But there, there, there's a question, it seems, about three or four and, and who's going to keep control of those. But, but generally, the desire of U.S. bases to remain um, was also frustrated, and it seems that they're not going to be um, any really significant U.S. bases in Iraq anymore. So then let's return to the question we began and then uh, take a look at, at to the future. And maybe, again, this is a loaded question, but uh, you are with the War Resisters League, and we'll leave time at the end for you to tell our listeners more about the War Resisters League. But uh, the War Resisters League, one of the oldest... Uh, you know, pacifist, anti-war organizations in uh, the United States, uh, uh, consistently uh, talking about the costs of war, which I want to get into, and uh, the consequences of it. How is the War Resisters League viewing the events this week? Uh, I don't know if you could speak on behalf of the, everybody else, but is it being viewed as the end of the war in Iraq, at least the at, at its present stage, or are... Is the War Resisters League viewing this far more cautiously? Well, I'd say it is being viewed with caution, and um, you know we're, we're quick to point out that there's, um, first of all, this legacy we've been talking about, which needs to be emphasized right away, and the fact that it's not um, the struggles are not ending by any means um, for the Iraqi people as a result of what's been caused by the occupation. But I, I think it's key because um, we have such a direct connections to um, Iraqi organizing and, and civil society organizations, that they are seeing it as um, an important shift and that they see now um, more of an opportunity to face um, some of the repression and some of the regional forces so that they can liberate themselves. So, well, I think it's our responsibility in the U.S. to talk about the, the government's response, uh, accountability to Iraqis and the crimes they've committed, it's also really important to be guided by Iraqis who are seeing this as a moment of celebration, um, vigilance, and also new opportunity. So um, I think it's, it's, you know, it's, a, it's a complicated answer, but uh, there's, there's definitely... Um, cautious optimism because of the strength of Iraqi civil society. So then let's turn our attention there. Um, first, tell our listeners uh, about the, the government. Uh, one of the goals was to uh, establish uh, a democracy in Iraq. Is there a stable government and is it democratic? And then from there, tell our listeners, uh, you certainly have an ear to uh, what people are doing, how they're organizing, and uh, kind of protest movements or, or grassroots organizations in Iraq. Tell our listeners uh, exactly what the status is of government there and how people are organizing. 
Well, um, uh, the, the government is actually um, uh, a, a parliamentary d- democracy, um, in quotes, um, in the sense that there are elections. Um, but the, the, one of the major issues that the protest movements have had with this present government is that it's explicitly sectarian. So, for instance, um, the, the prime minister must be um, Shiite, and uh, the president must be Kurdish. So these particular posts have an explicitly sectarian identification that go with them. And this flies in the face of um, the experience of all Iraqis who, for instance, my father, who grew up in Baghdad, didn't know the sect of his friends. Um, there, of course, was a sectarian component in life, which Saddam actually strengthened um, during his last years, but was nowhere near on the level of actually assigning um, a sectarian identity to a president. So that then has filtered into um, how parties are formed, um, how political games are played, and that's um, one of the main reasons why it's, it's almost impossible to work within the context of the present Constitution, because it, it really derives from that sectarian divide-and-rule strategy, which was implemented um, in, in the first days by Paul Bremer. So while there's been widespread corruption, a lack of social services, um, regimes that seem to also be beholden to outside forces, um, including the U.S. occupation. There's been a huge opening for Iraqi protests to question the legitimacy and to call for the rewriting of the Constitution, um, to call for independent labor unions, which is another key demand that's been made by, for instance, the Federation of Workers' Councils and Unions in Iraq. So since February 25th, um, there have been a rising protest movement which is calling for the end of the regime, much like um, other uh, Arab countries surrounding it, and specifically saying that we want an independent judiciary um, and a a more functioning democracy. So I would say that um, one of the most important things that people can do in in following it is to actually learn about these organizations and understand their demands, because if we're talking about reparations or how the um, U.S. people can be accountable to Iraqis, they first need um, functioning institutions that would represent them, which is um, maybe the first step that they're going for <clears throat> when they're calling for um, a new political system and, and representative organizations. You know, it's it's very interesting, the, the timing of everything, because, um, you know, certainly uh, Time Magazine uh, this week has declared the protester, you know, the person of the year, and uh, certainly while Americans would like to think that the protester simply refers to Occupy Wall Street, really refers <laughs> refers to, uh, you know, the uh, the uprisings throughout the, the Middle East, and, uh, and including uh, Occupy Wall Street uh, here and in Europe. Um, and yet the United States has been very cautious in uh, monitoring Egypt, in uh, monitoring Libya, and uh, uh, certainly Syria, where the United States has, has done very little and had been very slow and, and so on and so forth. My point being, um, it, it's quite interesting to see that there is this growth, as, as you mentioned, of protest movements and the voice of the people in Iraq, and I wonder if that is a cause of concern for the government, considering that, you know, when the United States claims that it likes to set up democracies, it's usually democracies that are um, fitting the goals of our 
government. So we're often, uh, you know, I mean, Egypt is a perfect example where um, we want a democracy, but we might not want the, the Muslim Brotherhood, or we want a democracy, but we, we want it a democracy the way we intend. And so I, I wonder if that poses a conflict uh, or a concern for the United States government, that there is this, this growing protest movement within Iraq. Yeah, I mean, I, I would say so, partly because um, the, the fact that uh, many Iraqi people oppose, for instance, um, the, the privatization, which um, the U.S. as well as many other multinational corporations are trying to create there. Um, what's been an interesting result of how uneven um, the, the occupation has been, though, is that while many oil contracts have gone to, like, to ExxonMobil, that process is incomplete. Um, and, and you could say the same for many of um, Iraq's industries, like the textile industry. So right now there's an already existing struggle against um, the present uh, rulers of Iraq, uh, Maliki's regime, for an increased privatization, kind of following the plan of, of what was to be instituted at the beginning, and the demands of people that want to combat, let's say, the 40% unemployment that exists in some Iraqi parts of the country um, against, like, the, the independent unions that many groups want to form that would actually represent workers' rights. So um, it would be um, in the interest of the people, uh, of course, to be able to create those independent institutions, but would contradict many of the plans, which are to create kind of a, you know, a new market and um, and, and uh, privatization-friendly environment in Iraq. So um, right now, when there's going to be less military presence is when the real economic struggle will begin and when the, the question between the people and the present-friendly, U.S.-friendly regime um, will really be fought out over the coming months and years. We're speaking with Ali Issa from the War Resisters League, taking a look at uh, maybe the end of the beginning, at least, for uh, the establishment of a stable Iraq. Uh, certainly, America's attention, or I should say American citizens' attention, uh, has shifted away from the war in Iraq um, and either focused more on Afghanistan or simply on domestic issues, such as the economy. But I think, as you just mentioned, uh, certainly we have a responsibility to the Iraqi people and their economy. Um, what can the peace movement that has sort of been um, replaced with more of a, a progressive populist movement, uh, what can the peace movement do to make sure that um, we're not just leaving the Iraqi people uh, by themselves? How can we support uh, the people in Iraq and um, what should our focus be? I mean, that's a great question. I think just the first point to make is that um, uh, on kind of the, 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 the broadest level, um, there's a way that these struggles are really intertwined. Um, I mean, it's, it's a question of um, kind of the, the ability of civil society in Iraq and, and, and other places to, to not allow for let's say, for an investment that's unpopular is actually in the interest of American people as well um, and would strengthen the, the American economy. So I think a coordination globally among all these protest movements is, is really key and should be our long-term goal. Um, more immediately, though, um, like you said, uh, Afghanistan, of course, which is an, a, a very important um, struggle to fight, has become the focus and, and the fact that vast majority of U.S. troops are there, justifies that. But th there's there's a, a media blackout on Iraq, um, including the fact that there's been a 
lively um, protests there and strikes, like like really um, that's, that's unprecedented, even in the Arabic language media. So one thing that um, a concerned U.S. public could do is just look into stories and um, and organizations that are coming out of there and spread the word of them. Um, although, of course, that's not going to create changes on the ground. That's an incredibly important first step, especially for Iraqis who are getting less coverage than it seems any other um, popular uprising. And second would be to um, develop solidarity institutions which are firm and can kind of carry out messages from um, what's going on on the ground Iraq to what's going on here because there's sort of a, a question of not being able to speak through Iraqis' voice and, and being able to channel their particular demands. Um, Iraq Veterans Against the War actually has um, really been interested in transmitting the messages to their supporters and, and, and uh, spreading any reports that I've been filing from Iraqis themselves. So I think more of those like direct connection solidarity efforts would allow for things like reparations, like um, international coordination to really bloom in the future. And what um, pressure should we be putting on the U.S. government in terms of uh, reparations? I mean, how do we make sure that uh, the infrastructure is repaired? How do we make sure that we are leaving uh, a stable society without simply handing um, large contracts over to, to um, you know, developers who are going to profit from it? I mean, how do we make sure that uh, if there is, as you mentioned, 40% unemployment in parts of Iraq, how do we make sure that if we are providing reparations or repairing infrastructure, that the jobs are actually going to Iraqis who need it rather than uh, to outsiders, as has been the case, I think, throughout the war in Iraq? Yeah, I mean, I, th- I think it's, it's, it's a challenge. Um, I, mean, I think the first step, like I said, is to actually... Um, be aware of groups and independent unions that are making that their explicit demand. Um, the oil workers, for instance, in the South and Basra, who I also have contact with, um, have been fighting uh, foreign investment from the U.S., but also from China, and making sure that um, jobs remain there. But I, I think an important um, step to those larger aims is, is to talk about particular cases. So, for instance, the Organization of Women's Freedom in Iraq um, has done a study of, of a village uh, near Karkuk in the north called Hawija, which had um, a U.S. military installation there, which is now being dismantled, but has created many, many cases of cancer and environmental damage. Um, and they have an explicit campaign going on right now, um, actually supported by Italian um, solidarity work, which is trying to call the U.S. officials into account, as well as the Iraqi ones that um, facilitated that destruction that happened in that village. So I think it's, it's focusing on very particular campaigns, which can be named and measurable and create some momentum, um, such as in the case of Hawija, that then can be kind of generalized to, to identify who caused what and, and how to pull out from those um, ventures, because the, the creating an independent um, Iraqi labor union and a labor union movement is very much um, in, in a long-term goal, and that there has to be a lot of minor successes uh, to get from here to there. Finally, if you could tell our listeners about the work that you do uh, uh, more broadly with the War Resistors League and maybe link it all together. I mean, there's, there's so much information that you've provided us. So um, certainly 
where can listeners turn to find out more, not only about uh, actions with regard to the war in Iraq, but the war in Afghanistan and global conflict uh, and military conflict globally? Well, um, just with regard to Iraq, um, there, there's a, a page on our blog, which is warresisters.wordpress.com, um, which has, has many stories that, that I've alluded to earlier here. Um, a, a lot of our work recently has been um, about we're in Afghanistan actually connecting with a, a diaspora group called Afghans for Peace, which is um, Afghan-Americans that um, oppose uh, the NATO and U.S. occupation there and that have many connections um, on, the, on the West Coast in California as well as in Canada. Um, also with the Occupy movement and Occupy Wall Street, um, it, it really built on something we had been talking about before, which is the direct connection between U.S. financial institutions and corporations and um, U.S. global militarism, so that we created a popular education curriculum um, that can be used by community organizations as well as high school students, which try to, in an accessible way, show what the um, direct material costs of war are, as well as then um, how, how it's affecting the people that are occupied. So that curriculum, bombs and budgets, um, as well as some of the actions we've been doing on Wall Street to highlight the fact that um, empire should be included in conversations about the economy and social justice can all be found on the website, uh, warresisters.org. And I want to uh, just mention again the, the blog site. It's uh, warresisters.wordpress.com. Uh, there's just a wealth of information looking under uh, Iraq Now reports, uh, lots of information about um, defying Iraqi's police state. Uh, there is an interview with uh, Uday Al, how do you pronounce the last name? And uh, he's the individual uh, probably most famous for uh, throwing the shoe at President Bush. Is that correct? Actually, that's his older brother. That's What's his interesting older brother. is the shoe thrower's entire family became organizers after that um, shoe throwing event. Nice. And then, uh, yes, what, how, how, how more eloquently can we put it? Uh, <laughs> there's uh, there's uh, a whole bunch of links to uh, activism taking place in Iraq. Uh, links to resources, how to get involved, and uh, a whole bunch of posts. So again, that is at warresisters.wordpress.com and uh, a lot of news uh, that doesn't seem to be um, necessarily making it into uh, the more mainstream press. A look at uh, Iraqi feminists uh, who have been sexually assaulted and uh, so much more. Finally, tell our listeners about the War Resisters League in general. If there are individuals who are first learning about the War Resisters League. It certainly has uh, quite uh, an historic uh, past. Sure. Well, the War Resisters League um, has been around since 1923, and um, it was actually uh, founded by uh, conscientious objectors, objectors to World War I. Um, so kind of along those lines throughout the decades, um, it has included... Um, uh, veterans that have opposed the war as well as people that refuse to fight um, and has played an important role in many domestic struggles as well. So, for instance, the civil rights movement, um, the women's movement in the U.S., and has always tried to um, link what, what we call the war at home and abroad. Um, so I think that's, that's really key in our, our present moment because 
like that curriculum that I mentioned and, and other struggles, there's a real need to see how they all interconnect and how um, like really local struggles and concrete ones here have global implications. Uh, so uh, along with, with that is the opposition to kind of all war and all forms of violence, um, which is, I think, something partially unique to the Wars League, and uh, which has local chapters and affiliates all over the country. Um, our national office is here in New York, but there are many members and um, organizers with WRL uh, everywhere. And, and the website is warresisters.org. There's also information about uh, you know tax resistance, which uh, we've covered here on this program, and uh, so many other um, uh, links to publications from the War Resisters League, Win Magazine, uh, and so many other things. The pie chart about where your tax dollars go. There's the War and Peace calendar, the handbook for nonviolent campaigns, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So uh, I certainly encourage listeners to check it out at warresisters.org. And uh, I want to thank you, uh, Ollie, for joining us this morning. And uh, anything else you want our listeners to know as we uh, look back on the war and uh, look forward on what next? Um, well, thanks so much for having me, Jared. And, um, yeah, I would just uh, emphasize that um, on the level of, of media and awareness, um, what, what seems like something that's small, which is sending a link or doing the Facebook actually would do a, a, a world of good for an issue that's facing a severe media blackout and that um, there's a lot to be cautious about but much there that, that I think deserves some optimism in the coming years there. So um, thanks so much for letting me speak about it. It is warresisters.org and warresisters.wordpress.com for all of those articles and links. Uh, Ali Isa, thank you so much for joining us this morning. Thank you. Take care.